Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hi there, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to The Stages Podcast. For over three decades, the name of Jennifer Eddy was foremost in the Australian opera scene as the major artist manager. Her stable of artists became household names under her guidance and Jennifer Eddy Artist Management boasted the creme de la creme of operatic celebrities. What was little known was that Jennifer Eddy had experienced the journey of a singer on an international level firsthand. Her career as a brilliant coloraturo and soubrette soprano had taken her to the major opera houses of the United Kingdom and throughout Europe. She packed into her 15 years on the operatic stage what reads like twice the amount of performances of any other soprano of this voice type. Jennifer's vocal technique was strong and secure. Her delivery of the most difficult stratospheric vocal writing appeared easy and her pert stage presence was beloved by colleagues and audiences alike. What seemed to be the perfect career flying high came to a sudden halt in 1968, due to a physical condition which remained undiagnosed for almost seven years, by which time Jennifer had closed the door to her singing career and opened another as an artist manager. Jennifer's is an incredible story. Two careers that have rewarded her with excellence, incredible generosity to her industry and a legacy that has left an indelible mark on classical singing and opera in Australia. Stages caught up with Jennifer in Melbourne. She recounted a fascinating life in two acts, as performer and manager. Jennifer Eddy, how delightful to sit down with you and have this conversation for stages. Well, it's very nice of you to have asked me. (laughs) I think uh, somebody with the um, extraordinary career that you have had across a a couple of occupations, um, I think, you know, it's it's, uh, absolute that we need to have this conversation and record it for posterity. Yes, well... uh, you know, as as you know, my my singing career ended uh, when I was only thirty six, uh, and then I thought, you know, well, what on earth am I going to do? And uh, then, 
about five years later, I started uh, as an artist manager in Australia. Uh, and after some years, I, I came to think that my career as a singer, my first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. Well, it gave you um, an incredible grounding in understanding the artist and what they go through. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, an, an artist would, would ring and say, oh, you know, this this has happened and look, I don't know what I'm going to do and, you know, what do you think? And there weren't many occasions when, uh, I, I didn't say it, but I could have said it, well, you know, I've done that, been there, done that, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Got the T-shirt. <laughs> That's right, yes. yes. <laughs> and this, this is what I thought, but, uh, you know, I'd phrase it in a different way. Well, it's a very unique position to be able to offer that first-hand experience and those those um, opera singers that you managed were, were most fortunate. Well, uh, yes, but you don't have to have been uh, an international opera singer to be uh, a, a wonderful artist manager. For instance, uh, I was very, very fortunate in London. I had... Uh, uh, Lise Askenas uh, looking after me and she was one of the top agents in the world at the time and uh, I was you know thrilled to bits when she took me and uh, she uh, she had grown up you know in Austria with music all around her and her parents used to take her to the Vienna Staatsoper so she was really steeped uh, in in music uh, before she started her business but uh, and of course that that is the way with, with has been the way with quite a lot of wonderful artist managers, mm-hmm. and she certainly was one. To have an appreciation of the artistry, but also of the business side of things, how well how that all works. Well, that that's that's another thing, mm. because uh, when I started the artist management business here, uh, I had absolutely no idea about what was in the contracts for, for singers because I never read them because, uh, I mean, in any case, there were sometimes in languages that I wasn't, you know, really fluent in. But uh, I trusted Lise Askenas and so she would read the contracts and so I never read them. So that was something I really had to learn about. Is it fair to say that you were the first uh, opera singer manager in Australia? Yeah. You're a pioneer in in artist management? Well, I was a pioneer and uh, nothing to do with me having been an opera singer myself. uh, Nobody was doing it here. Uh, And uh, I remember when uh, the the great uh, and well-loved Australian bass singer Neil Warren Smith, who was a contemporary of mine uh, and uh, who I had met you know, in our early years at the the local singing competitions, and uh, I remember that he came to London uh, to sing uh, some guest performances with English National Opera, and uh, so uh, David and I invited Neil and his wife to come over for dinner, and that was uh, when I had decided that I had to give up the singing, and. Uh, I decided that I was going to have a go as an artist manager. And at that time, uh, Neil was 
the perhaps the, the best known opera singer in Australia and certainly the most loved. And so I told Neil what I was going to do and he said, Well how would you like after, how would you like to look after me, darling? And I sort of Oh I said Yes, Neil, yes, yes, I would. And I told Lise Askeros about this and she said, she said, she said, Jenny, that is wonderful. She said, you will ride into that industry on Neil Warren Smith's tales. And it was true because uh, when I first started, I had to make appointments to go and see top people at the ABC and the opera companies. And of course, uh, I understood this. They were suspicious of me because they didn't know whether I was going to be helpful or just come and, and make a lot of trouble. Mm. But I found that when I went for these interviews uh, that they would say to me quite early on, well, you know, who do you represent? And, of course, there was Neil Warren Smith and then... Um, some of my uh, contemporaries and, and friends uh, like Gregory Dempsey and Margaret Elkins and they uh, very kindly uh, said well this is when we were still in London well when you go back to Australia and you start this business we'd like you to take our Australian representation um, which was was very very generous of them and, and a real uh, a real show of our uh, a very long and loved friendship. But I used to find, as I said, when I went to these uh, interviews and they'd say, who do you represent? And uh, I would say, Neil Warren Smith. And they'd be so impressed with that that I could talk to them about Neil for the next 10 or 15 minutes and I didn't have to say anything else because I didn't have a lot else to say at that point. <laughs> so crucial to uh, that new occupation, you had to build relationships with the organisations who would be employing the singers. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely right. And uh, as I said, I knew that people would be suspicious mm. of, of what I might do. And uh, you can't build trust overnight. So I knew it would be a long process and the first couple of years were pretty hard, but I didn't expect them to be anything else. I imagine the organisations would grow to appreciate your role also, rather than dealing directly with the singer. Well, to today, uh, you, I don't think you'd find a singer in a professional singer in Australia who wasn't represented, and uh, also. Uh, Something else that, that I was responsible for uh, was getting uh, uh, other people interested in doing what I was doing. So they would become my competitors. Training <laughs> the next generation. That's right, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember Virginia Braden who ran arts management in Sydney and she was only looking after uh, uh, orchestral players. Uh, and um, I remember she came to see me in my new office in Melbourne and uh, she said, look, I, I thought I'd come and see you because I just wanted to assure you that I will not take on the representation of singers. And I said, Virginia, I said, I want you to take on the representation of singers because I said... I don't want to manage every singer in Australia. And I said, and every singer in Australia doesn't want me yeah. 
to be their manager. So Virginia then started and then others joined us. Do you prefer the term manager or agent? I don't mind which. Both the same. No. <laughs> Both the same. But, yes. it, but it is crucial for an artist in, in securing an agent, a manager, to have um, a relationship, a mutually respectful relationship. Yes, um, absolutely. You need to have great trust in your agent that they're going to do, serve you a, a, to the best of their ability. Yes. Um, and I, I guess if you don't have that relationship, you move on and you find somebody who does understand you and vice versa. Absolutely. And uh, uh, th- that uh, situation arose oh, maybe only a couple of times in the almost 40 years I was doing the job. And, uh, and I can remember saying to these people, look, we've both tried, you and I have both tried very hard to make this relationship work. But I said, it isn't working. And I said, that's not good for you for your future so I said why don't you try and go to you know whoever whoever you you, you might think is a good idea but I said look you know I said just stay here as long as you as long as you can find somebody else and then I'll perfectly understand Uh, and uh, I, I think that that was the proper thing to do what year did you start Jennifer Eddy Management uh uh, 1975, right. yes, because we, we got back here in uh, end of March, back here from London, end of March after 16 and a half years, um, and uh, I started the, the, the business almost straight away. I, I borrowed my mother's portable typewriter and we were, we were renting a flat uh, uh, initially, and so I put mum's portable typewriter on the kitchen table and then I started writing letters to people and fortunately I had at least Askenas who I mentioned before uh, she she wrote a, a, a marvellous letter uh, which I was able to use and also um, Lord Harwood uh, uh, that I had, had, had got to know uh, over the years he wrote a marvellous letter for me um, because when I first went to the Royal Opera House, uh, George, as I later called him <laughs> when he became a friend, but definitely Lord Howard initially, um, uh, he was um, uh, planning director at the Garden. And he, uh, he, he heard me at my audition and he obviously liked what he heard and uh, seemed to have... Uh, a great interest uh, in in my potential. He he really thought apparently that I was going to go go places, uh, and then then he left there, uh, and um, then I mean in later years he became uh, the director of English National Opera, but uh, in between he married, uh, he divorced his his first wife, and this was absolute scandal uh, in the London of the time. It was all over the newspapers because he was, you know, part of the royal family. And um, uh, he had he had met 
Patricia Tuckwell, who was an Australian, and so he divorced his first wife and he married Patricia. And I had known Patricia here. And one day I was walking along Regent Street in London and bumped into Patricia. And so we started to, to meet for a coffee every now and again. And then I was reintroduced to, to George Howard. Yes, and um, as I say, he, he, he wrote me a, a wonderful letter of recommendation when I came back here. So I, I was lucky.
So up until your evolution as a manager, singers were representing themselves. They were negotiating with um, as the Australian Opera or the ABC. Oh, yes, absolutely. Which is a very yes. um, intimidating position sometimes for an artist. Oh, well... To, to, to put a value on their uh, uh, worth as a, as a performer. That's right. Mm. Because I remember, you know, when I first started here... I, I had absolutely no idea uh, what what I should be paid or what it would be reasonable to ask me to do. And uh, I, I remember um, that this was before I uh, joined uh, the inaugural season of what is now Opera Australia in 1956. Um, I think it was 1954, I made my uh, professional stage debut at the Princess Theatre uh, in the soubrette role in The Chocolate Soldier. And um, uh, uh, somebody who was uh, putting on the, the Christmas pantomime, Aladdin, uh, uh, saw me, heard me. And uh, so he offered me uh, the role of, um, of, of principal girl in Aladdin. And I was Aladdin's uh, girlfriend. I was the princess of China. And uh, I remember... <laughs> that um, f- for one of my songs, uh, I was put uh, in a sort of a, a, a strapped thing and then flown up uh, in, the, in all the top areas of the Princess Theatre. Uh, and uh, I was, <laughs> it sounds very corny now, but I was singing, um, uh, waltzing in the clouds, <laughs> and I was, I was crossing China to look for Aladdin. <laughs> And then I remember one day when I was doing this and floating around in the top part of the Princess Theatre, uh, I heard I heard a little boy down in the stalls say uh, to his mother, Mum, isn't that Mrs Beamish? <laughs> <laughs> you obviously didn't suffer from vertigo. Uh, well, I do, actually. You do, right. Yes, okay. yes. But as I say, I was sort of strapped in uh, and, and I had a... I had a a hat on with a very big brim and uh, underneath a part of the brim was a torch and I had hold of something to operate the torch and so as I flew across China looking for Aladdin I would put the torch on my face. (laughs) (laughs) Spotlight please. Yes, yes. Uh, At the height of Jennifer Eddy management how many singers were you representing? Well... At one point, I counted 93. Yes, there were some conductors in there and uh, opera directors as well. I mean, just a few uh, opera directors and, you know, maybe five conductors because there wasn't enough work in Australia then to to take any more. And so 93, I thought, this is just getting ridiculous. I mean, I did have very good help in the office uh, and I I gradually scaled it down to about 60, which is still quite a lot. Yes, Mm -hmm. when you have to keep it across all of those careers and make sure that Mm. you're uh, serving all of them as much as you can. Yes, yes. But I did have... Uh, a, a couple of, of very, very uh, knowledgeable people. I mean, knowledgeable about music and singing. Yeah. Yes. So I was... Uh, and also could do the business side of things. So 
Uh, so I, I was lucky that I found these people. Yeah. Everything in life has a purpose. Yes, yes. I seem to have heard that before. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No, I, I, I can't remember now because it's so long ago uh, that uh, who I heard saying that, but it stuck. It stuck in my mind. Everything in life has a purpose, and I thought, looking back, yes, I can see that. That's you know, like the old adage of um, if you, life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. <laughs> if one door closes, <laughs> you open one a window. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Which very much happened for you. Yes. Do you remember the very first opera that had an impact on you? It might have been an audience you're in the audience of. The, the very first opera that I saw was uh, Così Fan Tutte uh, and was, was sung in English and uh, I can remember going on my own to hear this and I was probably about oh, 18 or 19, I suppose, as I said, the first opera that I, that I saw and, uh, and I thought, mm, yes, I thought... Yes, you know, I, I had thought that that was what I wanted to do, but I hadn't actually seen an opera. But when I saw it, I thought, that's what I want to do. Signora Dorabella, Signora Fiordinici, tell me what has happened. A terrible disaster. Then tell me all about it. Our lovers have left Naples and we are both deserted. Oh, is that all? They will be back. Who knows? Why do you say that? Where have they gone? So much the better. In that case, they'll return covered with laurels. But if they should die, well, what about it? All the better for you. How can you say that? I mean it to the truth. What if you lose them? The others still remain. Ah, without my Guglielmo, I could not go and leave him. If I should lose Fulano, then Fulano also, death would be more than welcome. Well spoken indeed, but that's not true. I've never heard of a woman who died for love. To die for one man when a thousand others can be had for the asking. You really believe we could love other men when we have heard as lovers, Guglielmo and Ferrando? They are no better, nor are they worse than the others. But they're away now, and rather than lament in sackcloth and ashes, Forget them and enjoy yourselves. Enjoy yourselves. Precisely. By far the best cure for a lonely heart is a new romance. What else do you think your sweethearts are doing while they're away? You dare to insult those noble spirits, models of faith and paragons of virtue. You think that men are stable. That's no more than an old woman's fable. Stop it, it is. Oh, 
I was six years old till I was 16. Uh, I thought, now, if, 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 you know, if I could get into opera, I, I do know how to walk across a stage and sit down and stand up and all of that, and, uh, and, and singing as well. But I, I actually uh, should go back to... When I was 11 years old, um, my, my mother had entered me in the elocution sections of the Corowa of Stedford. And in those days, Melbourne to Corowa was a very long, long way, way. Mm. yes. And my elocution teacher uh, said to my mother, Marjorie, you're going such a long way uh, for, for Jennifer to go into these uh, elocution competitions. She said, she said, why don't you enter her in a singing section? And apparently mum said, we don't know whether she can even sing in tune. My father was a good uh, amateur baritone and uh, Mum's sister was also a good amateur soprano. And so uh, she she taught me uh, my curly-headed babby, uh, which was a set piece for this um, a section that Mum entered me in, in Korowa. And so I can remember, as I say, I was 11 years old, I can remember standing on the stage and I was singing and I thought, I like this. <laughs> I thought, yes. I thought, this is what I would like to do because I can use my drama experience and I can sing as well. So uh, I, then when I, when I got back home, uh, I said to my father, as I said, he was a, he was a, 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 a pretty good uh, amateur baritone and he took voice lessons from uh, a, a teacher and uh, so when I got back home, I said to, to Dad, I said, I said, Dad, I said, I'd like to have some singing lessons. I said, do you think you could ask Mr Nielsen, who was his teacher, 
if he would give me some lessons. And Dad said, well, why don't you ask him yourself? He said, just, you know, walk around. It was about 10 minutes' walk from where we lived. He said, walk around, he said, and ask Mr Nielsen. So I walked around and I asked Mr Nielsen and he said, definitely not. He said, you're much too young, go away. And so every year on my birthday, I would walk around to Mr Nielsen's and I would say, am I old enough yet? No. And so apparently just before my 15th birthday, uh, Dad spoke to Mr Nielsen and he said, look, Jim, he said, will you please give her some lessons? She's driving us mad. She sings from morning till night, so she may as well be learning how to do it correctly. So that was how I got started. <laughs> Why was Mr Nielsen adamant that you're too young? Is is there a, a right age for a singer to begin learning? Oh, well, I, I think that, um, uh, that it can be dangerous uh, if you start too young. Uh, and uh, and I, I think that I think he was right. I think yeah. he was absolutely right. And the great yes. singers have an emotional palate, also, don't they? Yes. And at fifteen, your lived experience yes. probably isn't as as broad. Well, it definitely isn't no. as broad no. as it needs to yes. be. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, so, so when I was fifteen, he he did uh, take me for singing lessons. Um, I, I didn't learn a lot from him, but he was gentle with my voice. Hmm. I mean, somebody else could have, you know, got me sung out yep. in a year. Yep. But he didn't. He was just gentle with me. Who were your singing teachers through your career? Well, um, uh, after after Mr Nielsen, when I was 18 or 19, I went uh, to, to study here in Melbourne uh, with a, a, an Austrian teacher called Henry Portnoy, uh, who had uh, emigrated here, and I knew uh, you know, quite a few of the, the young singers who were learning from Mr Portnoy, and uh, so I, I went and uh, had an audition with him, and he said yes, that he would take me, and he was, he was a very fine pianist as well. Um, and uh, I, I really uh, learnt a lot with him, and I stayed with him until I went... Uh, to London when I was, I think I was 24 or 25. Mm. You uh, won the Mobile Quest? Oh, no, I didn't. You didn't win the Mobile Quest? No, I didn't win the Mobile Quest. I beg your pardon. Which one did you win? I won the inaugural Shell Aria. Oh, it's all petrol? Yes, yes, that's right, (laughs) yes, yes. And it was in, um, it was in Canberra and uh, uh, the the adjudicator was... um, I can't think of the man's name now, but he was head of the ABC, uh, as it was in those days. And, um, you know, I was thinking, oh, you know, should I really be spending this money? Uh, Because I I was working as a, well, we used to be called a secretary, a PA now. And uh, and I remember it was going to cost me £60 for the return air trip to Canberra which was an awful lot of money for me in those days. And uh, this uh, head of the ABC was the adjudicator, and he had previously adjudicated me just a few months before uh, in what used to be called the ABC Vocal and Concerto competition. And I was in the final, but it was quite clear 
to me when he he wrote some things about me afterwards that he didn't really think I was up to much. So I thought, oh, what's the point spending sixty pounds going? And this man, he doesn't doesn't like what I do. And anyway, I I went, and just after I arrived there, uh, somebody from the committee uh, said to me, "Oh, look, we should tell you that Mister." God, I wish I could remember his name. Um, he isn't going to be adjudicating because his wife is unwell. And so it will be uh, Mr Joseph Post, who was then uh, music director of the Sydney Symphony. And he had adjudicated me at the South Street competitions in Ballarat. And when I was 18, he gave me the first prize in the Staff Opera competition. So I, I tried not to look too pleased about this man's wife being ill, but I was thrilled to bits. It's, oh, it's going to be Joseph Post. And uh, so uh, they he chose eight finalists. And uh, then, uh, interestingly, when he, he got up on the stage to make the awards, uh, he said, now, he said, I haven't awarded the first prize to somebody who necessarily sang the best tonight but he said it is the singer that I think has the greatest potential and then it was me wow so <laughs> and a thousand pounds that's an extraordinary amount isn't it was the Incredible. first prize yeah. and that they just handed me this check for a thousand pounds you know, n no rules or anything like that to follow. Did you go and buy a nice new car? Or? Well, you see, that's what a lot of people would have done. And I did say then um, that I think that uh, money that is won for singing must be spent on singing. And so it certainly uh, helped uh, to get me, and by then I was married, uh, helped me and David get to, to the UK. We're talking, uh, it's a time also when it would be very difficult to make a living as a singer. Oh, very, very difficult. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, I did make a living here as a singer um, from when I was about 19, uh, which was quite unusual in those days. But the ABC um, had, as well as the what it was called then, the Victorian Symphony Orchestra, they had another orchestra. And this other orchestra used to play lighter things and they had a weekly program on a Saturday night. And um, so uh, I, I did an audition and, I, uh, the, and they used me on that program. And uh, as well as singing you know, something operatic, say, um, uh, they also got me, uh, you know, to to sing uh, sort of things that were not not pop things, but uh, you know, sort of in between. And apparently, they thought I could do this quite well. And so, I used to I used to go there a lot. I and and a couple of other programs on the ABC. I would probably do about three or four months You're on a, the ABC. A crossover artist. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes, it was what we call crossover singing now. Yeah. Crossover music, I mean. Yes, yeah. You did the uh, the Beggar's Opera on the ABC too. I did do the Beggar's yeah. Opera, yes. Yes, I did um, with um, the great Australian baritone John Shaw. And uh, and I, I really, really enjoyed that. Enjoyed that. And I, I learned things from him uh, as well as other people in the cast. 
What a glorious time for the arts when the ABC would rehearse and film and broadcast yes. an opera. An yes, opera, yeah? yes. Specifically yeah. for a, a televisual y- audience. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Well, thank heavens they did because it was pretty, pretty uh, you know, little else that we could uh, earn money from in those days. Yeah. Well, it was, as I said, you know, it was before, I think, it was Lady Mayoress's receptions and Masonic Ladies' Nights. And then at one point, I remember um, I did cabaret at uh, the the Australia Hotel in Collins Street and I would people ate earlier in those days and so I'd go there about six o'clock and then about seven o'clock I'd wander around these tables singing while people were clattering their cutlery and then I'd, I'd be finished by eight o'clock and um, then uh, my husband would would often meet me uh, outside with the car and drive me to uh, a Masonic Ladies' Night or something like that. And so I would sing there and get these two fees in the one night. Oh, heavens above, it was unheard of. <laughs> it must have been very disheartening not to have anyone notice you on those occasions. Yes, well... How do, how do you keep optimistic and positive and, and working towards? Yes, well, um, uh, I, I seemed to uh, to work with, with, with people. For instance, these things like Masonic Ladies' Nights. Um, it was a, a, a pianist there uh, who was often asked to, to recommend artists for that sort of thing. Uh, and... Uh, and he, he he thought that I was exactly the right person to do this. So he helped me get a lot of work because, you know, there were no agents, as we said, yeah. in those days. Helping to find your work, you had to find it yourself. Yeah.
So arriving in London, I'm sure there were many Australians all pursuing their dreams too. Oh, absolutely. And uh, at, at, at that point, um, they were saying that uh, that if all the, the Australian singers left the Royal Opera House, the Royal Opera House would have to close. <laughs> really? There were that many? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, there were. And um, I mentioned the, the great Australian baritone John Shaw before, and... Um, uh, he had he'd arrived there a year or eighteen months before, and uh, he was already principal baritone at the opera house when I arrived. And he uh, and his then wife invited uh, David and I to to come and stay with them for a couple of weeks on arrival. Um, and he had set up an audition for me in the opera house and I don't know what he told them about me but I was able to miss the first uh, audition where you're supposed to be heard by a member of the music staff in, right. in a studio and somehow or other I was heard on the stage first time <laughs> yes and um, so uh, seemed seemed to go well and uh, then they said they wanted me to come back in two weeks um, because there'd been somebody uh, should have been somebody on that panel on the audition panel who wasn't there and that person would be there so um, you know I thought, oh, yes yes and uh, so uh, I remember John Shaw saying to me because as I said by that time he was principal baritone at, at the Royal Opera House and he said uh, he said how would you like me to arrange a coaching with you for with Edward Downs and many years later, Ted, or became Sir Edward, uh, he was music director of the Australian Opera. But in those days, he was the young conductor coach at the Opera House. So um, John introduced me to Ted and uh, or Mr Downs, thank you. And uh, <laughs> so he, he took me through my audition pieces and um, then... A few days later, I did the audition, and I know he was on the panel, and um, I hadn't heard anything after a couple of days, and then uh, John Shaw said to me, oh, he said, I bumped into Ted, he said, in the opera house today, and he said, uh, he said Ted uh, said, oh, he said, John, he said, I, I want to tell you we were all very impressed with your friend. He said she remembered every single thing I told her at the coaching session. And I remember when I came out of the coaching session, I quickly opened up my music and I wrote everything in. And there were, there were 23 things that he told me about one particular piece and I wrote them all down. And uh, so uh, I think that that went a long way towards me getting the contract because they, they offered me a, a, a principal artist contract straight away. That didn't take long? No, no, it did not take long. No, it didn't. No. I, well, I, I, was, I was there a, a lot earlier than I thought I would be. Remember, pinch yourself moments. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. What did you sing for the audition? Uh, I sang um, Rosina's aria, Una Voce Poco Fa, from The Barber of Seville. Uh, and I sang one of uh, Selena's arias from uh, Don Giovanni, Batti Batti. And, um, oh, I must have sung something else. Uh, oh, it, it might have been one of the other uh, Selena arias. 
yes, but uh, anyway, they liked what they heard and uh, and I got a contract. What do you think it was about the Australian singers that there were so many that were successful so quickly? Well, somehow or other, I think that uh, there were a, a lot of uh, Australian, young Australians, who had just natural, very good singing voices. As far as range and yes. diction? And... Yes, 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 and... Is that, was that to do with the, the teaching that was happening in Australia at the time, do you think? Or... I think partly, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah partly, yeah. yes. Uh, but, you know, as I said, there were so many Australian singers in London at the time working at the opera house, you couldn't go around the corner yeah. without meeting one. You would need to continue your singing tuition in London. Oh, absolutely. Who were your teachers there? Uh, well, um, I, I hadn't found a teacher uh, until I uh, started my contract at the Opera House and uh, I knew that I had to have a teacher and so I would sit in the stalls every time I knew there was going to be a stage rehearsal on and I would listen to the various singers and and I'd think, now, do I want to have that t- sort of technique? Oh, no, no. And then there was a, a, a soprano there and I thought, Yes, I thought that's the sort of technique I want. Uh, and I, I, I had met her there, and uh, so I, I asked her who she studied with, and she told me, Madame Berta Nicholas Kempner. And uh, she said, oh, would you like me to introduce you to Madame? I said, oh, yes, I would, I would. So she introduced me to Madame Berta Nicholas Kempner, and uh, Madame said, yes, she would take me. And uh, she was... A wonderful help. She did a lot for me, absolutely. And then, when I was established, she uh, she she died, and uh, then I went to to Roy Henderson, who had uh, been uh, one of the uh, most sought after and admired English uh, baritones in in the concert repertoire. Uh, but he deliberately retired at 50. He didn't have to. He deliberately retired at 50 because he wanted to teach. teach. Right, right. And uh, so uh, I was lucky enough for him to take me on and he helped me after Madame had died. Teachers are in a unique position, a bit like a manager, in that they can be a confidant of, of the artist. Absolutely. As, as well as teaching technique. Yes. It's a psychological preparation of the artist, isn't it? Isn't yes, it? yes, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, and, uh, and and that has quite a lot to do with uh, helping build your confidence as well. Yeah. It's a, a mental preparation to, to sing well, isn't it? Mm, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. So you're learning languages also. Oh, That's yes. That's a, a necessary part of your job. Yes, yes, um, yes. Uh, of course, once I, I started uh, at the Royal Opera House, uh, there were language coaches there. And uh, mind you, the first uh, opera that I sang in, the first role I sang in, was uh, the role of Xenia in Boris Goodenough, Xenia being the, the daughter of uh, Boris Goodenough. Um, and um, and the, the title role was sung by the, the, the then great Russian baritone, uh, 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 
Christoph. And um, so, uh, but as I say, it was in Russian. So, I, they, they, I mean, they, you know, the, the coach there, the Russian coach there at the garden, uh, I had several coaching calls with her and uh, she, you know, took me through my, my role. Uh, and uh, I, I remember that um, the, the, this particular scene that I was in that I had to do with the great Boris Christoph. Um, uh, it, it was called the nursery scene and uh, I was there with my so-called brother and um, uh, uh, Boris uh, Christoph, as Boris good enough, would, would come into the nursery and uh, he was consoling me. I was supposed to be 15 years old. He was consoling me on the death of my fiance in the war and so... Uh, we rehearsed this, you know, quite a few times, and I used to put my head down on on his chest, and I knew enough that uh, that when I did that, I put my head out facing the audience, and so that you know went okay. Except on the first night, I did that, and he put his hand on the top of my head, he clamped his hand on the top of my head, and he pulled my head around so that my face was absolutely in his chest and I could hardly breathe and I was thinking but I've got to sing in a minute and about a few seconds before I had to sing he released his grip and I sort of took a breath and off I went So what was that about? He was he was upstaging you. He oh was yes, yes. He, sort of, he, sort he didn't we'll, like the competition. No, we'll fix this young girl. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you're in the enviable position of being offered the contract at the Royal Opera House, but also at Sadler's Wells. Uh, yes, at the, that was at the same time, mm-hmm. and so I I had to think very carefully about this. the The, the contract at the Wells was. Uh, to to sing major roles straight away. And um, the one at the garden was to start with smaller roles and understudy the the stars, as it were, and then progress to singing the major repertoire. And so uh, I I very wisely, I think, uh, took the contract at the garden and sort of worked my way up at Sadler's, the Sadler's Wells audition, John Matheson gave you some very sound advice about where to sing. Yes, absolutely, yes. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, when I, when I first went to the garden, he and Ted Downs were the two young uh, coaches, conductors. Uh, and so I had some coaching with John there, and, and he, he was a terrific coach. Uh, and so... Uh, then when uh, he uh, and I sort of met at Sadler's Wells was to do uh, Fledermouse together. And uh, and, and that, that was really good because uh, he, he gave me a few coaching sessions too. And uh, Did he point out a particular board to stand on at the audition? Oh, yes, that was, that was John. Absolutely, yes. Yes, yes. Um, uh, well, uh, I had done uh, some coaching with him on, on the pieces uh, before the audition, which John Shaw kindly arranged for me. And um, then 
I think it was the day before the audition, he said to me, would you like me to play for you tomorrow? I said, oh, John, yes, that would be that would be wonderful. And so he took me on to, to the stage uh, ahead of the audition, and so I was able to stand there and looking out at this magnificent auditorium. Uh, and then he said to me, now he said, just come here. He said, you see this board down here? you know, on the floor. I said, yes. He said, well, that was where Geely used to stand because he said that that gave him a, a, the best acoustic in, into the into the opera house. So I thought, well, if it's good enough for Geely, it's good, it's enough, good enough for, for me. You. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. you would have been in a few opera houses. Do you have a favourite? Uh, well, I always felt that the Royal Opera House was my home. Uh, and... Uh, uh, the, uh, it, not everybody thought it had a great acoustic, but I, I did. And I say, from I always thought of it as my home. off with Manon, Peter Grimes, La Sonambula, Rigoletto, Midsummer Night's Dream, Orpheus, De Sorberflot. Yes, um, yes. Extraordinary roles. Yes. Did you have a favourite? Yes. Um, oh, look, not really. Mainly the one I was doing. Um, uh, but I, I did enjoy doing uh, Titania in Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. That's uh, the Britain? Mm, yes, mm. yes. Uh, and... Uh, I was I was working with with the famous uh, and well loved baritone uh, Geraint Evans, who was uh, playing the role of Bottom uh, in uh, in the the production when I was doing it. And um, at the end of the first act, uh, Titania and Bottom uh, are supposed to be lying down, going to sleep, and uh, so uh, Geraint and I used to have to sort of go up this bit of a steep hill on the set and then lie down on this very narrow ledge and Geraint always used to very gallantly sort of move over and try to give me as much room as he could and uh, especially so when I was pregnant yeah. and because he, you know he would because I, I still sang 
uh, performances there until uh, I was seven months pregnant. And uh, so poor old Geraint, in the end, I mean, he, he had about two inches of space and I had to have the rest. <laughs> <laughs> Did motherhood change you as a singer? Does um, the voice change at all? Or? Uh, not that I was conscious of. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I don't ever think remember thinking to myself, oh, yes, yes, you know, I can do this now and this has happened. No. So, so I said I, I, I sang performances till I was seven months and uh, then I went uh, back uh, uh, to performing um, six weeks after Eamon, my son, was born, uh, which was too soon. It was really too soon. I, I, didn't, I didn't sing very well for the next uh, month, I suppose. Till your, your your body was returning to its what it once was, I guess after yes. after pregnancy. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, that's yeah. right. And yes. a, a good deal of exhaustion too, I imagine. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. Um, a good deal of operetta also is part of your your repertoire. Yes, yes. Is there a different approach to uh, both of those genres, opera or operetta? Look, look, not really. Um, when uh, a lot of singers are confronted with dialogue, they get very nervous. But because of my elocution drama uh, training, uh, I, I didn't get in a panic when I had to do dialogue. Um, and um, I suppose you would say Adele in Fledermouse um, was certainly one of my favourite roles and uh, um, uh, one of my big successes said she modestly yes. <laughs> well when you've got the laughing song delivered to you on a plate you can't oh, go wrong can you absolutely yes and um, uh, the, the, the singer uh, who, who was singing um, oh, I think it was the, the role of the jailer in that uh, Francis Edgerton, uh, and uh, and and then he was he was singing an, another. He was a wonderful character tenor. He was singing another uh, character role in Ariadne when I was doing Zerbinetta, and uh, and he said to me, he said, look, he said, you know, he said, every time I'm in an opera with you, he said, it runs longer. <laughs> I said, yes. He said, because of the applause. He said, look at the applause after the laughing song. And I said, Frank, I said, if you can't stop the show with the laughing song, you shouldn't be in the business. Quite right. Yes, Quite right. yes, yes. No, it's a gift, a gift of a song. Oh! 
the, the world's great opera artists, as well as having a, um, a vocal prowess, are also terrific actors. Yes. How did you prepare a, a role? Like, I mean, I know that you worked with that great Shakespearean actor, Glenn Byam Shaw. Absolutely. He yes. must have been a wonderful teacher of acting also. Oh. He uh, did the production of, of Flodermouse, right. the new production of Flodermouse, uh, when I did Adele. And um, uh, he he was inspirational. He, he really was. And I, I always remember um, uh, on the first night he came into my dressing room to, to wish me all the best... And uh, and he said he said I want to say a big thank you to you, he said because I know that you'd sung this role previously for the Welsh National Opera, and he said it didn't matter what I asked you to do, he said you never once said to me oh well you know I used to do it this way, and I said well no Glenn I wouldn't dream of saying that he said well he said I just want to thank you for that, but I I did learn a lot from him. Uh, and uh, that that uh, production of Flo Mouse that he did, it, it was an absolute joy to be in. Mm. Well, 1968, it all seems to come crashing down with mm. a physical condition which becomes prominent with your, your vocal cords drying out. When did you first start to notice that something was wrong? Uh, when I started to have difficulty with the very high notes in my voice because being a, a, a coloratura soprano uh, I had a sort of a, a, an extension uh, on the top of the voice and um, one or two of those really high notes uh, suddenly became uh, effortful and I thought oh I thought what's happening here uh, and uh, then uh, it sort of was, was, was creeping down uh, and th- that's when I, I took myself off to uh, to Harley Street to to one of the uh, uh, ENT people there that I'd been to on and off throughout my career. And he was the first one to look down my throat and say, "Well, your vocal cords look like two pieces of old elastic." And that's that's what all the other ENT people in Harley Street said. That's something uh, a singer doesn't want to hear. Yeah, no. So I mean, it was no wonder that I, I couldn't I couldn't sing because they wouldn't stretch. Uh, but n- none of them knew um, what to do about it, and uh, it, it it was only when my GP and this is after five years I have to say of trying to f- find what was wrong with me and how it could be uh, remedied. Um, my, my GP said to me, he said, look, he said, it's a long time since you've had a, a gynecological examination. He said, why? He said, look, he said, I'd like you to go uh, to, to John Frankenberg, who was then one of the leading gynecologists in London. And he was also a great opera fan. So when I, I went to him, he knew <laughs> who I was. And, uh, and, and, and he was the one who, who found the problem and, and saw that this growth was there and uh, that you know when it had, when it was growing over the six years was growing feeding on the fluid in my body that um, kept muscle tissue elasticized and so uh, he 
uh, he, he removed the, the lump, of course, but uh, he said to me, um, and this was in conjunction with, with, a, with a, an ENT man as well, um, that they, they were of the opinion that my, my vocal cords would fine for just you know, everyday use, but for them to have to sustain uh, what I was doing as, a, as an international opera singer, uh, they they both said they, that the chords were not going to be able to be relied upon for that. So uh, I had to had to realise that that was a part of my life that was over. A very difficult thing to to realise to y- yes. to comprehend. Yes, yes. I heard my husband David say to somebody once, "I think Jennifer would have rather lost her right arm." There must have been a period of depression. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. Because it was it, it, it was sort of in me, a part of me, absolutely a part of That's me. That's how you expressed yourself. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Um, and uh, so it, it, it was not uh, something that was just easy to deal with. Um, but, you know, fortunately I had my husband David's support uh, and... You know, after a time, I realised, well, this is how it's going to be, uh, and so you know, are you just going to sit around now and do nothing, or are you actually going to to try to do to get into something that you really really enjoy and something that you do well? Everything in life has a purpose. Absolutely, yes. And yes. Uh, as tragic and traumatic as as losing your voice was, look at what you've done for the careers of umpteen singers. And yes. opera in Australia, your contribution has been enormous. Well, um, I eventually came uh, to say to myself that my first career was just a preparation yeah. for my second career. Yeah, giving you that essential background experience. That's right, yes, yes. Do you still manage to sing? Do, oh. have, have, not... not, not a big sing, but yes. are you able to sing? I have. I'm being absolutely truthful when I say this. Apart from, you know, perhaps being in in church at a with a wedding or a funeral or something, um, I have not sung a note. I don't want to hear that noise. Right. I just want to remember it as it was. Yes, um, it would be very painful to hear. What the sound is now? Yes, yeah. so I, I, I've never wanted to hear it, so I, I've, I've never sung in the shower or anything like that. No, not once. Well, fortunately for the listener, if, if they would like to hear um, how Jennifer sounded, Brian Castle's Onion, with that wonderful um, collection of great Australian voices, um, celebrates you in a particular three-disc set. So I've been listening to it recently. Um, yes. And I think we'll, we'll play a few through during this conversation. Um, it's an extraordinary uh, record of your, your career. Yes, well, I, I think Brian did a wonderful job putting that album together. Yeah. I really do. It's something for us to savour forever now. You're on the record. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Jennifer, when you were uh, an artist manager, uh, did you have a, um, a ritual that you went through on opening night for an artist? If it was a... Not really, no. 
Are you checked I mean, in with them at all, or? Oh, I would. I would. Uh, I mean, in, in those days, I had a, uh, a you know a pass uh, to um, you know the Sydney Opera House and uh, the, the Arts Centre in Melbourne and you know Adelaide wherever, uh, and and I would always go and uh, and you know say hello to them and wish them all the best um, before the performance, and uh, you know I wouldn't stay long. And then I would just get out and leave them to it, and uh, and of course go back afterwards, and hopefully be able to say, "Well, you did well." Yes. Did you share their nerves on opening night? Uh, sometimes I did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Depending, uh, you know, uh, what it was, uh, they they were singing, and uh, what I knew might be coming up on the next page. <laughs> yes. yes, you would know exactly yes. what was coming yes. up on the next yes. page. But you know, iconic productions like you know Baz Luhrmann's La Boheme at the, the Opera House. Yes, you represented a great number of the, the principal cast. I did. That. I think yeah. five out of the six principal uh, characters I represented, and uh, Moffat Oxenbould, the then artistic director uh, of uh, the Australian Opera, as it then was. Um, Put, put together this young cast of Bo- Bohème and uh, it, it was very brave of him to do it uh, and uh, on the first night they had they had a, a wonderful success really, really wonderful and um, I know that uh, the, the Melbourne people always wanted him to bring that production here with, with those singers uh, but uh, he, he didn't uh, and uh, I, I believe that the reason he didn't was because they had made these, they were young singers, they'd made the roles their own in, in the Sydney Opera House uh, where the, 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 I mean, the size and the acoustic is, is better than the State Theatre here wow. and I think I think probably he didn't want to expose them yep. to, to that. Phenomenal cast. David Hobson. Oh, yes. Roger Lemke, David Lemke, Cheryl Barker. Yes, yes. Christine oh. Douglas. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. absolutely. And then I think uh, I think Arendt Bauman yeah. uh, was Corina, yeah. uh, who I also represented. Yes. Um, but, no, it was it was wonderful to see those those young... Singers, you know the the Lemke brothers and uh, and, and and David and Cheryl uh, uh, up there being so so believable. Mm. Yes, no, it was really something quite special. And uh, it's uh, I had a phone call from Roger Lemke the other day. Uh, I haven't spoken to him for ages, uh, and he said, "Oh, he said it, it's the twenty eighth anniversary of that bohème." Wow. He said, and uh, he said, I, I, "I want to have a bohème reunion," uh, and he said, "I," uh, he said, "I'd like you and David to come for lunch on whenever." Yes, yes. So that's something we're really looking forward to. Oh, brilliant! That's 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 wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So, were you able to um, contribute casting ideas to to um, the opera companies when they were oh, yes. planning a season? Oh yes, that's part of the job, right? Mm. Suggesting mm. yes, who might be best? Yes, for. Yeah. yes, and uh, uh, but I mean, of, of course, it's the, it's the opera company who decides in the end mm-hmm. who's going to sing what. But uh, they're planning often 
two years in advance, aren't they? That's right, yeah. yes, yes. And, uh, you know, perhaps if I uh, t- took on a, a, a young singer and I thought, you know, there's, you know th- this is going to be really something, and then if I would arrange the audition with, with uh, you know, some of the opera companies and then talk with the managers of the opera companies afterwards uh, and, uh, you know, perhaps be able to say, well, look, I know you're doing such and such an opera in two years' time. What about uh, having so-and-so? Yeah. Because I think he, she would be ready for that then. Uh, and uh, so, of course, I mean, they didn't always take any notice of me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but uh, but I, I think it was mutually beneficial too yeah. to have those conversations. Yeah. Jennifer, in a vast career with two incarnations, singer and manager, is there a particular highlight or something that you are proudest of? Um, look, maybe I'm, I'm proudest of being able to say goodbye to the singing career and not feel any envy when I went to the opera and saw people up there on the stage and especially the, the sopranos singing the role that, that I would have sung if I'd been in it. And uh, so uh, I, I, think, I think that I handled it pretty well, as I say, because I didn't ever feel you know, feelings of envy towards these people. Jennifer Eddy, thank you for being so candid in sharing your story today. It has been a delight. Thank you for having me here. What a story, eh? Jennifer is such a vital cog in the machinery of opera performance in Australia and an example of reinvention and resilience. My guest in this episode, Jennifer Eddy. My thanks to Brian Castles Onion for his assistance in producing this episode. And if you'd like to hear more from Jennifer Eddy's brilliant singing career, Desiree Records have released a three CD set of recordings as part of their Great Australian Voices series. It is the most wonderful collection which is presented in a glorious booklet with extensive text detailing Jennifer's stellar career. Thanks for joining us in this episode. It's always great to have your company. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, stay safe, keep warm, and I'll catch you next time.